discipleship today. Uh, and so that's kind of a word in the church that has been used for quite a long time. Um, and so uh, I thought the best way to illustrate discipleship in my life is to talk about probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Uh, when I was 16, I mean, when you're 16, you do all sorts of crazy things, right? Uh, when I was 16, me and my best friend Josh, we decided to sneak into a club with fake IDs. Um, and so we were curious, like, what a dance club looked like, right? And so he got, his, he got his brother's ID, which he looked exactly like his brother. And I got my friend's K's ID. And this is how K looks like. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm six inches taller than K. Uh, and uh, he didn't look very much different from this picture. And, um, and so, uh, needless to say, all Asians look alike right now. Uh, uh, so I memorized this license, and I remember I said, hey, Josh, quiz me, in case the bouncer, like, you know, asks, like, uh, personal information. So I memorized his address, you know, everything about his license. And so we went to the club, right? Josh goes up first, and so we're 16. We drove out. It's like an hour away. Like, there's no way we would go to a club near our city. Uh, so, uh, Josh pulls up to the club, uh, and then we roll out of the car, and Josh goes first, and so the bouncer looks at the ID, and Josh was 16, but he can grow like almost a full-on man beard, right? And so we knew we were going to do this, so that week leading up to it, he didn't shave, and so he looked so much more mature than me, and uh, I, I barely had peach fuzz at the time right here. And so Josh rolls up, and then the bouncer looks at his ID, looks at Josh, and just lets him in, no question, right? And so it's my turn, and my heart is like pounding in my chest, right? I'm like, I'm going to get thrown in jail if I get caught. Like, I don't, I don't know what to expect. And so he, um, the bouncer looks at uh, the ID, he looks at me, and he says, that ain't you. <laughs> and there was no way I could convince him at that point, right? And so he uh, gives me my ID, and then I go back to the car, and I just wait for the next hour and a half, as Josh is probably having, in my mind, this great time, right? Later, I find out he's, like, in this corner. He didn't even dance. He was so afraid to approach anybody. So, um, uh, you know, and I think in terms of discipleship, sometimes the world looks at us, me as a Christian, and looks at Jesus in the way that the Bible talks about it, and the world says, that ain't you. That ain't you. See, Josh had the advantage. He grew up in the household. It had the same DNA, blood as his brother. He can grow a beard. He was mature. He looked like his brother. I looked nothing like Kay. And in some instances, like when people look at us as Christians and they look at the person of Jesus, they say, I like your Jesus. I just don't like you Christians, right? So honestly, the, the process of discipleship is this. Uh, discipleship is us becoming more and more like our brother, Jesus. And that, at the end of the day, that's really what uh, discipleship really means is how do we represent Jesus in a way that's accurate? How do we look like His um, image? How do we act and behave and talk and work and love others in the way that Jesus would love? Um, and so that's what discipleship is really about. Um, and we're going to continue on in our DNA series, and these are the four pillars of what we consider to be the, uh, the, the, the heart of the church. Last week we talked about kingdom. This week we talk about discipleship. Here at Trinity Life, there are four environments. Um, and some of you guys are like, really? We have four? Yeah. We have four environments in which discipleship happens. All right. The first environment, we call it body life groups. And so these are midweek groups we meet uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. There's uh, 
five groups that meet throughout the city, and we meet for just uh, fellowship, and we eat, and we pray, and we study the Bible together. This is called Body Life Groups. Uh, another environment is a one-on-one environment. A lot of us are in one-on-one relationships. We meet, we meet weekly. We meet, uh, you know, bi-weekly for um, accountability, for growth, uh, for prayer. And so these are one-on-one relationships. Another one is serving in the church. And so whether you're on, you know, the logistics setup team, serving in Kit City, um, whether you're part of, you know, uh, Deep Water, some of the other ministries that we've partnered with, you're serving the church, you're serving um, the community. Uh, that's another environment for discipleship. And then the other one is this time right here when we gather together every Sunday for um, a time of worship and then listening from God's Word. These are the four different environments that we have at Tree and Life. And there are other ways in which discipleship happens, but the ones that we're intentional about moving people towards are these four environments. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. I spoke really fast on that one. Um, but this is where we encourage you as those who are plugging into Train Life is to begin to plug into one of these four environments and grow in your knowledge and in, in your, uh, your faith as well. And so that's what we really want to point people towards. But I want to help you understand something about discipleship so it doesn't get caught right up here as a very heady topic. So, um, the Bible uses a lot of like other metaphors to talk about who we are in essence as people who follow Jesus. That it uses the word servants. It uses the word members. It uses the word um, citizens. Uh, it uses the word disciple. The Bible even uses the word Christian. It's mentioned once or twice in the book of Acts as a label or a categorization of those who follow Jesus. All of these are actually a metaphor that's trying to get at something a little bit deeper, something more foundational than just being a student of, which is what the word disciple means. You're a student or a learner of somebody. And so there's actually something foundational that these words, disciples, servant, uh, uh, citizen, they try to get at something that's more core to who you are. All right. And so what is that foundational aspect of what it means to be you as somebody who is following Jesus or somebody who's considering following Jesus? And so the most important thing that you'll ever hear at this church, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about the message that we teach, which is the gospel, that you'll have to learn um, on your own and in your own experience that we would ever have to, to, to really just pray and wish for you is this, and I think we have it up here on the screen, is that before you're anything else, you're firstly a beloved child of God that God ferociously pursues at all costs himself. Before you call yourself a disciple, a citizen, a member, a servant, a, you know, a tender, whatever it is, the most important thing about you, the most foundational thing is this, that you are a beloved child of God. At the end of the uh, sermon time, I'm going to pray for you and ask you to receive some prayer to understand this at a deeper component. But this is the most important thing about you in that God is ferociously, I specifically chose that word because I love saying it, he's ferociously pursuing you at all costs to himself. That he's do- That's the most important thing about you. If you don't get this part about the Christian life, discipleship is a rote activity, it's a discipline. And like all disciplines that some of you guys have started in the new year, probably already faded by week two. When it's just all discipline and no passion, it disappears and goes away. So I don't want you to forget about that. This is the most thing, the most true thing about you. Because this is the most true thing about Jesus. That Jesus is ferociously loved by his Father. 
And he is firstly and foremost, before he's Savior of the world, before he's Lord of creation, and before he's the Word of God that created the earth and the heavens, he was firstly the beloved Son of God. It's true about Jesus, and that's why it's true about you. And Jesus was the ultimate disciple because he was the ultimate Son. He was the ultimate disciple because he was the ultimate son. There are two things present when Jesus actually starts his ministry. So those of you guys who want to be more empowered to live like Jesus in your workplace, at home, be a better husband, be a better worker. Uh, Before he started his ministry, two things happen at Jesus' baptism. Number one is the love of the Father is present. And number two, the presence of the Holy Spirit is there. Okay? Love of the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, why don't you guys say that? Love of the Father... Love of the Father, presence of the Holy Spirit. All right. We're going to look at that in this passage from Matthew chapter 3. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus was anything else, he was first the beloved Son of God. He was ferociously being pursued by God his Father. And his, this was his motivation. This is why Jesus did the things that he did. In a sense, um, think about this. This is Jesus saying, or God saying to Jesus, Son, you have an A-plus in my mind already before you do anything. And so what he does is he actually gives Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to empower him later for the next three years to do the ministry that he calls him to do. As far as we know, this, is, this happens before any miracles that Jesus ever does. He's never fed 5,000. He's never raised anybody from the dead. He's never healed anybody from blind or sicknesses. This is the, the, the catalyst moment. He had the pleasure of the Father. God says, I'm proud of you. A plus. I know you didn't even take the test yet. A plus still. And then here he goes, the Holy Spirit to empower Jesus to do work. That pattern for Jesus is the pattern that God wants for us. Love of the Father. God loves you. Power in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. All right. And this is actually very helpful to understand this because most like uh, modern psychology uh, or, you know, kind of from the uh, 19th century, Carl Jung actually comes up with this idea of this child archetype. You guys familiar with this at all? The inner child, Right. Um, so you nurture the inner child. In a sense, and a, a lot of psychologists have said that a child's, a child's health as a, you know, um, 10, 11 year old dictates their health as a 30 year old. So if you're screwed up now, think back to when you were 10 or 11. That's probably what did it for you, right? And so what happened to Jesus is God is saying, there's no way you're going to be a screw up. Jesus had no daddy issues. He's the only person in this world that never had dad. His dad hugged him enough. His dad loved him enough. He had all the favor. He says, go, represent me. Jesus wasn't tripped up. This is the love that God wants to give to you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this level of like love and pleasure from God. Some of us have grown up in church and everything has happened up here. But Jesus walked with this. He was the ultimate disciple because he was the ultimate beloved son of God. He perfectly carried the DNA of the kingdom, the culture that what we talked about last week. And so for us, the war for discipleship, for you, for somebody following Jesus, the war for your discipleship, for your growth and your maturity, happens here in your mind. As a matter of fact, there's a word in philosophy that's coined as epistemology. 
how you know what you know. That how you know what you know actually affects the way that you look at the world, right? And so if you acquire knowledge strictly through experience, and then so that's how you're going to look at the world. You're very empirical-based, right? So epistemology, in a sense, is how you know the things that you know now and how you know that you know those things. It's really, it's convoluted. but uh, And so what Jesus is actually saying, um, uh, when he starts preaching his message uh, to his disciples and to those that are following him, is he starts with this word, repent. All right. So Matthew 3, 2 says this. We're going to get to the parable. Don't worry. We're going to get to the parable. But Matthew 3, 2 says this. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In a sense, what he's saying is that change your epistemology. Change the way that you know the way the things that you know. Change how you know it. He isn't just saying change what you think about the world. But he's saying change how you think about the world. Don't just think different things. Think differently. A lot of people think the word repentance means to feel sorry for your old ways. And actually, the literal translation is a transformed thinking. And so, it meta noeo. So, meta meaning change or transform noeo, how you know knowledge, right? And so, this is what Jesus says, is that change the way you think. That's the only way you're going to understand the kingdom. That's the only way that you'll actually live into what it means to become a son and a daughter of God. Most of us, most of us, if you grew up in church... It was a tradition for you. It was a youth group for you. It was the thing that you did, right? It wasn't a son-father relationship. It was a serving and like a religious going to the temple relationship if you had to be honest with yourself. God is saying, Jesus is saying, change the way that you think. Transform the way that you think. You're not an orphan. You're a son. Begin to think like one. Right. So the parable of the four uh, soils actually is the parable of the four mindsets. A lot of people have said this is the parable of the hearts, right? It's a parable of the four mindsets, the place in which you begin to think about the world around you. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is around you. It's near you, right? And so as we look at the four parables, um, and as I'm going through these four parables, um, um, I'm asking you to really dig deep into your heart and really be honest with yourself this morning and say, man, is there one of those four categories that might be me? Right? Is God working in my heart in a way where I think that, man, that's, that's really my heart. Right? So he uses this idea of the seed being planted. And the seed being planted, really, that seed really is any time you receive some kind of prompting from God that he wants to bring change into your life. Right? It's the message of the kingdom, Jesus says. It's, it's some kind of prompting in your heart that, man, I think... God, or, you know, for those of you guys who are still uh, journeying, but this, I think that the heavens, the universe, I think there's something in my life that needs a change. And Jesus identifies this as the seed. It's the message of the kingdom of God in verse 18. The soil represents how you process the promptings of God. So your soil is your mindset, how you're processing the things that you're hearing from God, the prompting, right? And it's actually the fourth mindset. It's the fourth soil that Jesus says, that's how you do it. That's how you process the message of the kingdom. Verse uh, 23 says this, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Let me give you some words here. Jesus says, in, in, there, in, ah, there you go, the highlights. Okay, great, perfect. This is the one who hears the word of God. Say, hears the word of God. Hears the word of God. Understands it. 
And let me give you the, the definition for actually understand it's this, the word actually is to investigate it and to believe in it. So he, they invest in, in, in believe in it, understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields. Bears fruit and yields, right? This is how you process the promptings that come from God. As you hear it, you struggle, wrestle with it, you believe in it, and then you bear fruit. You take action on it, right? So, at Trinity Life, we say that a disciple is someone who hears God's voice, trusts it, and obeys. You ever heard that before? Shake your head a few years. Say, yes, I've heard that before. Okay. We define discipleship as someone who, who is hearing the voice of God, and they're trusting it. And maybe you're learning to trust it. Maybe you're not a great truster. Maybe you're like me, you're worried and frantic and you're second-guessing yourself all the time. But you're learning to trust and then you're taking action. You're obeying. You're bearing fruit. You're yielding things. All right. For a lot of us who have grown up in the church, this is actually a very radical way to live because you would prefer, I would prefer, to have a list of do's and do-nots, right? And so uh, I grew up in a church where you couldn't dance, <laughs> believe it or not. And so that's why that's my only excuse for why I can't dance when I'm uh, hanging out with you guys. I literally don't have experience in dancing because my church says that was a part of the do not list, right? And so one day I'm doing my devotion and I'm praying, right? This is several years later and I was no longer part of that church. And I'm praying and the Lord is saying, I love you and I'm, I, I want to be with you. And really stuff that my dad, you know, has a heart teaches us. Mm, which means he loves me. Uh, and so I'm writing all this stuff down in my journal, and then the Lord says, would you dance for me? <laughs> That's not from God. Like, that prompting is not from God. Would you dance for me? And so I'm like, oh, you know, if the music was right. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very personal thing. It sounds kind of wacky, right? Like that you're, you're journaling and you're reading the Bible, and, and you hear this prompting, would you dance for me? Oh, God, that's not our tradition, right? I mean, right? if you lead, like dancing leads to sex, God, right? Why would that? That, was, that's, that was the logic behind not dancing in, in church. I said, Lord, I would do anything for you. And he said, then dance. And I remember the awkward feeling, you know. Like, I, grew up, I grew up, if anything, if we, any dancing, I, I'm, I'm like, hip-hop, hooray, ho. Like, I'm comfortable with that. Like, <laughs> I have enough, like, iffy to, like, you know, be able to, like, you know. Uh, so I can do that level of dancing. The Lord says, no, I want you to spin. I want you to twirl, right? And so it's easy for me at that point to, like, dismiss all this stuff and think it's, like, ludicrous. And so I'm, you know, I put my tutu on. That's what it felt like I had to do in order... And so I start spinning, and it takes about maybe 30 seconds before I just let it rip. And I'm just going for it. And there's some point in the midst of that where the floodgates, and I'm just weeping. I'm just weeping. Because I was taught all my life that dancing was ridiculous, and it's weird, and it sounds crazy to me even now to hear that. It's a radical way to live when you're saying, I'm going to go by God's voice and not the man-made rules. And for most of us, we grew up in this system where religion and faith was man-made, and God's saying, no, hear my voice, learn to trust, and as you obey it, you will accomplish my will and my purpose on the earth. Right? 
The four soils talk about four mindsets that Jesus is really saying. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's easy to read this and feel condemned. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not saying that there are better people out there than other people. He's saying the reality is that many of us feel stuck in our life situation. We feel stuck in our way of thinking. And he's saying there's hope for the way uh, that you would change your thinking. And so the first group that he talks to, he labels as the hard soil. And so this is me kind of just modernizing what I think Jesus is trying to get at. is you deduce and you deconstruct things of God until there's nothing worth believing. That whatever faith was there before, it was snatched away long ago. You're either smart, stubborn, or prideful. You're afraid to embrace a God that knows you deeply. It's easier to suspend belief than to deal with the reality of sin and forgiveness in your life. And you feel threatened at the thought of someone controlling your life. So this person is always deconstructing and deducing and if God was this and that and if God wasn't this and that. And so at the end of the day, there's nothing left to believe. And so, But the reality is that in their hearts, they're afraid to let go of control. Think differently, Jesus would say. God is a threat to your current lifestyle, but not a threat to your soul or your future. He may feel threatening to your lifestyle now, but he is not a threat to your soul or your future. You will not lose yourself the way that you understand yourself if you trust in God. Let God, the Father's love, steal your heart. And I know that doesn't like make sense to you, but in my culture, we don't practice this anymore. I didn't do this with Linda, but back in the old country, they would steal brides. Like literally, they would like go to somebody's house, kidnap a girl, and that would be their wife in a sense, right? And so they're come. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, terrible metaphor, but <laughs> it's this idea that you know you gotta you gotta surrender your heart to this person who's trying to steal your heart, right? And it know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but Jesus is kind of like a bride napper, and he's here to steal your heart. God is smarter than you, but he's also more humble than you. He's not trying to control your life. He's trying to give you life. Mindset number two is somebody who has no roots. All right. Jesus talks about the, uh, the seed that was sowed in the uh, rocky path, the stony path. Says that it grew little roots, and the sun came out, and it scorched it, and it shriveled up and died. You're probably spiritual, but not religious. You ever heard that term, that phrase? Spiritual, but not religious. The Bible doesn't impact your daily life. You like that God is love, but you struggle with the hard teachings of the Bible. So that, and maybe you're not aware of doing this, but so that you can compromise on things that you don't like about it. It's hard to be vocal about faith in public. Or the opposite, you actually act overtly spiritual to compensate for the shallow faith. The roots aren't deep, and so you feel fragile inside. Jesus says, this, this is a group of people, and again, this is not condemning. He's just saying, I know where you're at. I know some of you guys, I know where you're at. Please, don't hear me saying this in a condemning way. This is Jesus saying, I know where people are at. I know the spectrum. Repent. Think differently. Enjoying the Scriptures and trusting the Bible doesn't make you a fundamentalist. 
It doesn't make you a conservative. Trusting Jesus and the Bible for yourself only releases you into a deeper understanding for God's love for humanity. His holiness is not vengeful and mean. It's actually the hope. His holiness is actually the hope for world justice now in the future. And when you come to understand the Bible is written from the terms that God wants better for humanity, you realize that all the difficult things in the Bible actually help facilitate God's rescue of humanity. Right? Number three is uh, the third soil condition. <clears throat> Jesus says, there are those who the root go, or the seed goes in and it looks great and then it starts to grow and then the thorns and the thistles start choking it out and it can't bear any fruit. These are the unfruitful because you worry and have prideful ambition. He says the deceitfulness of wealth actually end up doing this to them. I would say a lot of days, 78% of my life might fall in this category. You've been a Christian for a while, but you're plagued by guilt. You have more to offer, but no energy to give. You've made excuses to God and to the body and to yourself. You're either a nice person and no one can challenge you, or you're angry and no one can challenge you. Either way, you tend to live above authority. And so this person oftentimes has every excuse for why they're not doing what God wants them to do. And it has something to do with their schedule or it has something to do with their resources or their finances or their, their goals, their ambitions, their priorities ultimately. And so they're always worried. And again, this is no condemnation. I'm not saying for you worry warts. I'm three fingers pointed at myself. That you're bad, bad, bad. Jesus is saying, I know, I know where you're at. Think differently. Think differently. God wants to heal you from this. Praise God, God wants to heal you from this. God is lovingly saying, lovingly saying that slow obedience is no obedience. No Christian community is perfect, so you can take that out of your excuses as to why you don't you know, uh, live in community. <clears throat> Everything you have, I've given to you, God says. Everything you have. Everything you have, I've given to you already. And everything I have is already yours, God says. <clears throat> Remember, you're not an orphan fighting for scraps. You're a child of the king with abundant resources. Tell yourself that over and over again. I'm not crying. <clears throat> My allergies are hurting me. Can someone give me some water? <laughs> uh, you're not fighting for scraps. There's enough to go around. That you're a child of the king. That God has abundant resources for you. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is a reality of what it means to be a child of God. That he has enough for you. That if you don't have more than what you have right now, it's because, we're going to see in the next slide, that this is what he deems appropriate for you right now. And the next mindset is, thank you, Kelly. Happy birthday, by the way. Yeah. I rode a bull yesterday. Uh, we went to Rock and Rodeo. It was fun. The fourth mindset is the multiplier. The multiplier. Now, I'll be honest with you. I would like to be a multiplier. 
Most of us would like to be a multiplier. We strive to be. Stop striving, by the way, because we're going to talk about how you actually become a multiplier. But Jesus says that God is actually renewing your heart. You love people more than you ever have. Something in your heart is changing, and you just you love people. Even the, even the cranky people, you love them. You want to do His will. You may not know how or where or what yet. And you're helping where you can, and God is very pleased with that. But you know and you think there's more, and it makes you anxious at times. But you're standing on God's Word, and you're persevering. You try to love people not in your own strength, but you try to do it through God's strength. And God isn't saying, you're better than everybody. God isn't saying, look at this person. God is saying, I know where you are. I know your heart. And even that group, the hear, trust, and obey group, even that group, we should think differently. You have to think differently as well. Repent. God chooses some to produce a hundred others to produce 60, and others to produce 30. All of that is good. Because all of it is God's fruit. He wants to heal us of envy and frustration. I was watching Minsu uh, teach at Rexdale on, uh, I didn't ask for your permission, but we're tight like that, so we can argue later. So Minsu's preaching at Rexdale. I was like, man, I wish I could tell stories like Minsu because he's just got this natural. And then Linda says, that was great. Did you see Minsu? That video was great. And I'm like, hey, how come you don't say that about my sermons? <laughs> and so God wants to heal us of envy and frustration for those of us who are on the path of discipleship. Those who produce 100 and those who produce 60 and those who produce 30, in God's eyes, in God's economy, all fruit is valuable. There is nobody who does better than the other in God's economy. If you have the mindset, Jesus' mindset, all I'm going to do is hear, trust, and obey. And the success is not in the fruit. It's in the the hear, trusting, obey. It's not in the yielding part. I'm sorry you're an orange tree and somebody else yields grape. But that's because God loves the fact that you're an orange tree. And he's got other people that he wants you to impact by your oranges. Okay, I'm taking that way too far. But you get what I'm saying, right? Success isn't in the 100 or the 60 or the 30. Success is in the, the, the hearing the message, understanding it, and being willing to bear fruit, right? Um. The, the tendency of our heart, and John Calvin is correct, I think we are all religious people that manufacture idols in our heart. The tendency of our heart is that once we understand that's the goal, I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to do better in order to attain that goal. I am going to be a better disciple. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to more prayer groups. I'm going to go to, you know, whatever it is. I'm going to, you know, ask more questions, and that's our tendency, and that is not necessarily bad in itself, but our tendency is that I'm going to do this myself, right? And there's something about Jesus' baptism that's so instructional that before Jesus goes and does any miracle or any ministry, God says, first, my beloved son, I'm well pleased in you already. And as you go, take the Holy Spirit with you. And that was the message that Jesus gave the church when Jesus left and said, it's your turn now. Jesus says, so as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he says in John 20, 21, and he breathed the Holy Spirit onto them. Later in Acts 1, 8, Jesus says to his disciples, 
Wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will go. See, God doesn't want you to manufacture activities and behaviors to please Him. He wants you to wait for the Holy Spirit to work in you. I was an engineer for uh, eight years of my life, and it's hard for me to understand this foreign power coming into me in order to accomplish God's will. But if God did that with Jesus, don't you think He wants to do that with you? There are many stories of uh, you know, uh, godly men that God used in the past, and they described this this incident. Like uh, guys like Jonathan Edwards, he said he wrote in his journal. Uh, it was recorded in a book, Religious Affections, uh, which is a very difficult book to read. But uh, he talks about this instance in 1737. He was a, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Edwards was the f- fifth president of uh, Princeton University. He says he was uh, walking in the forest uh, uh, like he does regularly uh, for a time of prayer. And he says it was something in the midst of that prayer time that he just began to have like this like mental vision of Jesus. And he began to sense the love of Jesus and the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. And he says in, in his journal entry that that actually uh, felt like it, it annihilated his spirit. It melted his spirit. And he just says for a whole entire hour he was weeping and just crying. This is Jonathan Edwards, and let me say, mind you, he's been claimed as one of the greatest American minds. Right? He's, he's weeping in the forest, just crying. And he later explains that it was the presence of the Holy Spirit powerfully encountering him that led him to that moment. So much so that he wrote an entire book that I can barely understand called Religious Affections about the idea of waiting for the power of God to come upon you. Waiting for the power of God to come upon you. My journey as a Christian, as a disciple, has been, uh, you know, kind of, it was not linear. It's all over the map. I grew up in a household where they brought me to church, but it was at the age of 16, where the, for the first time in my life, and I've told this story before, but it was at the age of 16 for the first time in my life that my head connected with my heart. And I remember I was sitting at a, at a youth gathering, and the guy was preaching about heaven. It wasn't a really great sermon, to be honest with you. But he said something that triggered a thought inside of me. He says, look at everybody around you. Do you know that God loves everybody around you just as much as he loves his son, Jesus? And something clicked inside of my head. And so he gave an invitation. And, uh, you know, uh, all, my, all my friends who were in gangs, they started, like, going to the front to, to get prayer. And so I'm just, as a 16-year-old, and I wasn't like particularly like, you know, super, super like religious at the time, but I'm sitting back here and I'm just bawling, like I'm sobbing, like I'm like, my shoulders like, you know, doing this like move and I'm just weeping. And so my, uh, our, our, our youth counselor comes over to me and says, Hey, you know, do you need prayer? Do you need to go up to the front and get prayers? Like, no, I don't need prayer. It's so I'm like literally, uh, uh, Funny, actually, it was Kay. It was Kay that came up to me and asked me if I needed prayer. Well, thank God for for Kay. Um, so I'm I'm weeping, and 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 he says, "Then why are you crying? Why are you crying?" And he says, "I say, no, I I just know that God really loves us now. I just know that God really loves us now." All right. And so, and then. Ten years later, Lynn and I are sitting in a, uh, in a worship service, and a guy named Dr. Stan DeCoven, president of uh, Vision International University, he's speaking in our church, like sitting off in the section, and he's preaching, and then you know, literally right in the middle of his sermon, he stops and looks over at us, and he says, you feel restricted in this environment, but God's going to call you to a higher purpose. 
And he comes back to preaching. And it like it hit me like a lightning bolt. And I was like scared and afraid at the same time. My tears are coming down. I'm like, God, what, what does this all mean? What does this all mean, God? Right? And several years later, we actually leave the environment. He was right. We left our jobs and, and went down to, to Fort Worth to, to finish a degree and then to come on staff at a church. And it was right around that time, and this is probably back in 2010, 2011, we're beginning to hear this idea that, man, you're more than just a servant of God or a, a disciple of God, or you're more than just a church member or a church attender. You're more than just a missionary or a pastor or a minister. That first and foremost, you're a child of God. You're no longer an orphan. You're sons and daughters of God. And that message began to penetrate my heart and just processing that with people and processing it in a group. And I remember uh, November... 11th, I think, um, I think, yeah, November 4th, 2011, I'm sitting in a group, a small group, about 60, 70 people, and a, um, a, a guy named Terry Virgo, he's a British guy, he, he leads a, uh, a church planning movement out in the UK, um, and so he's preaching, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's sharing his experience about when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, several things happen. One is you feel this tremendous love for God that you've never had before. Two is you feel this tremendous love for people that you've never had before. And three is that you feel this tremendous love for Scripture in a way that you've never had before. And I'm hearing Terry say this, and I'm like, God, I want that. That's what I want in my life. But I'm also realizing that the moments in, when I was 16 and when, when I was 26 sitting uh, in that service with Linda, that something happened. I didn't know this. I didn't have a phrase or a terminology. My, my church definitely, they didn't allow you to, to dance. So they definitely didn't allow you to be, you know, uh, have the Holy Spirit. And so I had no context for what was happening. But as I look back, it was my encounters with the Holy Spirit that God was shaping me to be his son for his mission. And so I remember Terry Virgo, uh, you know, he led a time of prayer. And I want to do this for us this morning. He led a time of prayer where he said, come in the front and you're going to get prayed for. And so I remember going in the front and this guy named Robert Lay, Robert Lay, um, he leads a cell group movement out in Brazil. Uh, and so he's this big guy, scruffy beard, looks like a grandfather. And so I go up to Robert. I actually wanted somebody else to pray for me because I thought maybe they had more like power or gifting. It's, I went up to Robert, and uh, um, so Robert wrapped his, he was shorter than me, so he wrapped his arms around me. And he was like, oh, Father loves you. Father loves you. Father loves you. And I felt really weird, actually, to be honest with you. I said, this is really weird, but I'll go with it. And so I'm expecting like that same zap that I had when I was 16, or I mean, I'm expecting like, you know, that, that overwhelming feeling of God's love, and he's hugging me, and he's just saying, oh, Father loves you. And so I go back to my chair, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess tonight's not my night. <laughs> I guess tonight, yeah, like I, I guess I only, you only get two shots, and I already had my two shots, so... And so I go back, and I'm just praying. Literally, the gathering is starting to thin out, and people are starting to leave, and I'm just on my knees praying. I'm just, God, I'm done praying for me. Let me pray for this church. And so I start praying for the church. Let me pray for my pastor. So I start praying for Pastor Bob. Let me pray for the other people around here that are hurting more than me. So I start praying for them. And so um, I get up, and it's like right around 10 o'clock, and so I head home. So as I'm driving home again, and I have one of those promptings again from God. That's one of those, like, heart promptings where you're kind of like, is that God or is that my imagination? 
And so as I was pulling up to the driveway, um, I stop and I sit in my car and I ask myself, is there anything that I would refuse from God if he wanted to give to me? If God wanted to give me something, would I refuse it? And I started thinking, no, I think I would, I would do anything. So if God wanted to give me different gifts of the Holy Spirit, would I refuse it? And I struggled. I'll be honest with you. You got to understand that my religious roots go pretty deep. Okay. I struggled with the idea that if God wanted me to, to have the Holy Spirit and, and, and do whatever he wanted me to do, I don't know if I would do it. That was the honest answer in my heart. And I remember wrestling in the car literally for 10 minutes saying, I don't know. Eventually I said, okay, God, if whatever you want to give to me, if it's from the Holy Spirit, I will not refuse it. I will not refuse anything that comes from you, God. I remember sitting and it came over me and it just rushed over me. And it was like 10 times what I felt when I was 16. And I was just weeping. There's a theme that comes with weeping. And I'll show you why. I was weeping. I was like, God, why do you love me so much that even in the midst of doubting and wanting to refuse you, that you would love me? And so I'm having this like breakdown in the car, like literally breakdown, snot, crying, like that my heart is being expanded and transformed. And I'm loving people and I'm praying for out of all people that I, out of all people I could have been praying for, I'm praying for Linda's brother-in-law who is going through, or sorry, my brother-in-law, Linda's brother, who is going through a lot at that time. And I'm weeping for him. And this takes like 20 minutes in the car. I finally catch my composure, you know, and yeah, I'm doing the, you know, you, you get to that point, right? You're like that. And so I walk into the car, uh, to the house and Linda sees me and she's like, what, what happened to you? I said, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. There's a passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. This is Paul the Apostle. One of the most brilliant minds that this world has ever known. Historic adventurer. This is what he says. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you got to know something about this word cry, right? If you look into the Greek, the word means shrieked like a baby. It's used to reference when the baby comes out, and it comes out just crying. Ah, like I don't want to, I can't mimic it right now. That's the word that he uses. He says that it's the spirit of the adoption that makes us sons, that makes us cry, Abba, Daddy, Dad, Father, overwhelmed with God's love for us. He later says that the Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God, the most basic understanding of who you are. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, and get this, fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus says this himself in John 17. He says, so that the world, everybody out there would know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus saying, God, you love them the way that you love me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them. Church, I want you to understand this, that God loves you as much in in the same way as he loves Jesus. That is such a mind-boggling thing. That is the most important thing about you as a disciple. Nobody can convince you of that. This sermon can't convince you of that. Only an experience, an encounter with the Holy Spirit can convince you that God loves you that much. He loves you with an unequivocal love that He has for Jesus. In that same way, He loves you. And it starts by saying, and then I'll receive. I'll receive all forms of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to lead us in a prayer of repentance and a prayer of invitation. And it's four different prayers for four different kinds of people this morning. And we're going to jump into communion. And I'm going to stay right over here. And in any of you feel prompted by God that you need to receive prayer, you need to, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to give you power to do what God's called you to do, I want to pray for you. So as you take communion, you can step aside and I'll pray for you. But let's close your eyes and let's walk through these four prayers. The first prayer is an invitation to the heart, soil, hearts, and minds. The invitation is come humble yourself and receive Jesus with your heart and your mind. Get baptized. Be baptized. Like Jesus was baptized. Follow Jesus. Second invitation is to those without any roots. It's the invitation to come study the scriptures. You're not intellectually weaker if you do. You will lay down roots in Christian community if you do. Risk loving the church and Christians even if it means that others would misperceive you. Grow some roots. The third invitation is to, for those who are busy and worried and have a lot of ambition, reprioritize God in the body of Christ in your life. Get on God's agenda. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else will be given to you. Get on God's agenda. And lastly, it's to the multipliers, to the fourth soil. Start with one. Disciple one. Be faithful with little. And God will give you more. Lord, as we approach um, communion, as we approach this time of reflection, we ask the Holy Spirit, come into our life. Come into our hearts. We want more of you. Spirit of God, Spirit of adoption, make our hearts cry out with affection genuine with our minds and our hearts Abba Father how you love us how you love us